me tell you about one of the biggest mistakes that I've made with regards to this show. I think it's important to talk about mistakes and limitations as well as successes and progress. I have uh, urged people, and urge myself, of course, pretty continually, to not mistake the world for yourself. Don't, don't think that just because you have a particular attribute or characteristic that is shared by the world as a whole. And I was thinking about this the other day in sort of reviewing, I mean, I guess coming up to the sixth year of FDR in one form or another, in October. Uh, after October, then we'll be in the sixth year. And one of the things that I have, I mean, I have a number of characteristics that I'm aware of. <laughs> one is that I'm a sort of nice and friendly fellow, but I have a kind of a core of, uh, of steeliness that is uh, surprising to people uh, very often, you know, because I'm nice and accommodating and I can, uh, don't have a particular ego investment in being right, so I'm willing to be deferential uh, where it's not important to me and so on. So people mistake that for, I don't know, a lack of resolution or a lack of... Um, spine, and uh, people are surprised, I think, when, uh, if push does come to shove, that I can be pretty goddamn resolute in that uh, in that stuff. Uh, I've never seen the movie Roadhouse, but I remember this from the clip. Uh, the guy, I think he's a bouncer with a PhD in philosophy, who says, uh, it's important to be nice until it's time to not be nice. And that's, <laughs> I've mentioned that before, but that's something that, I should probably watch that film someday, but uh, that's something that is, um, is part of me that is wanted to, to sort of mention, I don't know if it's particularly relevant to this insight, but the insight is that for me, tr- truth has always been, uh, it's sometimes been, a, it's been a long time coming, but it's always been inexorable or irresistible. Uh, if, uh, if I meet a better argument, I may fight and twist and turn, but eventually, uh, and it's usually not too long, although it can be, uh, it, uh, it goes down. I think the only reason that I was a objectivist for so long with regards to the, the government was I had simply not encountered any other ways of thinking. Uh, I had not encountered any kind of anarchic thinking. Uh, so when I came up with this DRO thing, that uh, was a huge revelation to me. Uh, I know it was a little bit reinventing the wheel, but I think there's value in that sometimes as well. But for me, when I'm faced with a better argument, I will uh, give up. Even at that point, it was 20 years of, more than 20 years of heavy investment in objectivism that I had to give up. And that was true with UPP as well, with compared to objective ethics, which had been my lodestone and my guiding star for over two decades. I had to give that up once I realized the limitations of objectivist moral theory and wanted to come up with something more comprehensive and more irresistible. To me, if I, if I can't have philosophy with a crowbar, you know, to just pry open bullshit and expose its steaming gunkiness to the light of day, I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to do this silly fencing with language and semantics. I'm going to only be interested in the kind of philosophy that uh, uh, frankly goes at people like a cannon. And I know that that's an aggressive metaphor, but that really is, is how I feel. I'm so sick and tired of philosophy being this angel dancing on a head of a pin, semantic, postmodernist bullshit that, uh, as I mentioned, I'm not going to do it unless I can... Uh, uh, philosophy with a crowbar is what... Uh, you know, pry it open. There's, there's no resistance. And that because that's how I experience it. I mean, I experience a better argument as a crowbar. It just pries off whatever prized knowledge that I have and uh, t- tosses it aside. And that is... Um, that is how I've experienced it. And I, I think uh, I mistook the world for myself. And uh, particularly because I sort of came in through my entree into the libertarian world and there was a lot of agreement and so on. And 
I mistook the world for myself in that for me, a better argument just pries bad arguments out of me relatively quickly. Um, it really was a flash of insight uh, and a couple of weeks of fevered work that dislodged objectivism within me. Uh, not renunciated, but you know, it revealed the weaknesses and gave me uh, something to do, right? <laughs> something to add to. Uh, and I think that's praise for objectivism that it took me that long. But anyway, so philosophy comes at me with a chainsaw, with a crowbar, and <laughs> it violates me, I tell you. And I made the mistake uh, for a long time to imagine that better arguments would be, uh, would be irresistible to people. In the way that they're irresistible to me, uh, that, that there was just that there would be uh, fighting and fussing, my friends, but there would be a uh, an abdication of error for the sake of uh, of truth of of, of an ironclad argument. I thought that with uh, I think I first thought I mean I thought that with stateless society to some degree, uh, and then I realized that there'd been a lot of work done in that sort of area before, and uh, so I wasn't doing anything massively radical there. I think the first article I thought that about was The State is the Health of War, which was my argument about how war can't exist without the government, and with some pretty some pretty damn fine arguments. The four arguments against government uh, was, I think, pretty um, pretty decisive. Uh, the Ron Paul stuff I did was pretty precise, uh, decisive and pretty predictive, I think. But for me, because the better arguments are irresistible to me, they're gravity well. I really, really thought that the better arguments would be irresistible to others. You know, like you, you move a planet into an asteroid belt and the asteroids change course. That's the physics. Uh, that uh, is the reality of that situation. And for me, better arguments are like physics. They're irresistible. They just are irresistible. And I think, I know that I made that mistake of thinking that I, better arguments would be irresistible to others. I wanted to point this out because I put so much passion and energy into making what I believe are better arguments that the fact that they are entirely resistible to a great many people is something that is uh, is quite important. It's quite important. And that is something I, I don't even want to talk about whether you're making that mistake. I mean, this is something for you to review. This is just sort of a, um, a bearing of the soul for what I'm mulling about. Of course, the stuff with the family was... Um, was a shock uh, that this was uh, uh, considered to be so radical. Um, you know, there's a uh, court case uh, somewhere around that uh, a mom who abandoned her son at the age of 15, he was homeless for a while, he hasn't spoken to her in decades, she's suing him for support, and the government is uh, so far siding with, uh, with the mom. And that is mind-blowing, I mean, really mind-blowing. Uh, it's a terrible mom, obviously, and abandoned and, and did nothing for her kids uh, uh, other than feed and clothe them for a couple of years. And uh, and the fact that the uh, mom is suing to get and is going along in the system, uh, and the arguments are like, well, you know, the courts must intervene where the morality, uh, morality and social mores don't hold sway. And I love this language. It's exactly what I talked about at Porkfest. They say, well, I have to intervene. Uh, courts don't intervene. Courts force. Courts will rob money from the children to pay off the mom. And it just, the parent-child relationship is, is so involuntary that it makes a child bride look like the very meridian of free will. Median. The apogee of free will, let's go with that. 
and can you imagine that if somebody was sold to like a, a woman a girl of nine was sold to a man to be married and then he abused her and abandoned her and then 40 years later he sued her for money can you imagine a court saying oh yeah well you were a child bride you were sold to this guy and so now you have to pay for his retirement uh, though you escaped him 40 years ago I mean this would never and happen in a million years and uh, yet a, uh, a parent-child relationship is less voluntary than a, a child bride so this is just a bit, but this is just something that people can just will that away, right? So I mean that those sorts of thoughts, those sorts of comparisons and ideas, you know that that gosh, well, women have the right to divorce abusive husbands. In fact, it's considered a good thing to do it if you can't solve the relationship. You try to work it out, but if the abuse won't stop, you've got to get out for the safety of you, for the safety of your children. But if adult children do it, suddenly it's heinous and and bad and evil and wrong. So for me, I mean, I grew up in the same culture as everyone else. I, mean, I didn't come from Mars. I grew up in the culture which is a veneration of parents. So, but when I came across, when those analogies were made clear to me, or when I came across them, or when I thought of some of them, actually, I think I just thought of, I can't remember them being made to me, because uh, it was such a struggle for me to even, there was nothing around when I was going through my defu. But when those analogies occurred to me, they were, just, they were irresistible. It's like, oh, well, of course, how can you argue that? And I have been continually shocked, though I'm less so now, by people's ability to ignore an ironclad argument or an ironclad analogy that reveals the moral truth behind a situation. That is something that is very important to keep in mind, that you may be living among mad people, uh, people who, who's, um, who do not have a conscience called reality that nags at them to abandon irrationality. They don't have that. They're anchored. They are unanchored. They are free floating. They are free agents of irrationality with no tether, with no anchor, with nothing cajoling them back to reason. And uh, that's an important thing. If, if, if you're that way, it's very easy to mistake the world for that and to imagine that the better argument will almost automatically create the better world. But uh, I think the evidence, certainly after the bomb in the brain series, the evidence I think for that is pretty clear that uh, it's not going to be arguments that are going to win the day. It's not.